Hi everyone, welcome to Stats with Crayons, a podcast where we talk about statistics, oral health, and everything in between. My name is Alonso Carrasco Labra from the Center for Integrated Global Oral Health at Penn Dental Medicine. Our guest today is Olivia Arhart, and we will be discussing issues related to random error and bias. Hi, Olivia. Thank you very much for joining us today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, Alonzo. Hi, everyone. My name is Olivia Urquhart. I also work at the Center for Integrative Global Oral Health at Penn Dental Medicine. I'm an epidemiologist, and I'm happy to be here today to speak with Thank you. you. Thank you for joining us, Olivia. We're very excited to have you here today. So in our conversation, you have mentioned that on a regular basis, you deal with investigators. You're part of research teams. And as part of what you do, you frequently deal with issues of random error and systematic error bias. For our audience, I hope you visit and look at our video in relation to this topic. Uh, but one important aspect of the video, one conclusion from that video, is that issues of random error and systematic error can distort results of clinical research. It's important that we're aware of those issues, and this can help us to understand better how much trust we can place in those research findings. So, Olivia, what are the typical misconceptions you see as a statistician when you interact with researchers or when you are conducting this type of research on a daily basis? That's a great question. Thank you. So typically, when I encounter these two concepts and when I talk to people about these two concepts, they, they often confuse how we can address them in the study design of, in our research. So they're, like you said, Alonso, they're related concepts in the sense that they both result in conclusions from our studies that may be misguided. Now, what do I mean by misguided? By misguided, I mean that results that are far from the truth. And in order to understand what I mean by the truth, we have to understand why we do statistics in the first place. So statistics are a means in which we can make conclusions about populations or a big group of people when that's not feasible to measure or ascertain information about this large groups of people. So we take what we call samples, and from these samples, we can draw conclusions about this population that we're interested in. So for example, if I wanted to know the, the average height of all the males in Philadelphia, I'm, I can't go to everyone's door and knock on their door and, and measure them or ask them what their height is. So I would take a sample of them, maybe people passing me along the street. And from that, I would maybe take an average of, of their heights of the small sample that I take. But it does matter how I take this sample, how I encounter those people. So the reason we take samples is because we want, like I said, we want to make conclusions about our population from these samples. The way this relates to random error and bias is that, you know, how do we know how large to make our sample? Random error relates directly to the size of our sample. So we want to reduce the random error, and by taking larger samples, we can do this. In contrast, if we want to reduce biases, we want to make sure that the way we take our samples is done in a way that reduces the chance that people in our sample are different from the population that we're trying to measure. So random error is all about the size of our sample, whereas reducing biases and systematic or systematic error is all about the composition of our sample and the way we conduct our study, I will say. I see. So it's, it's the procedures, really, right. what we're talking about. Right. And, taking a, and the way we take our sample is just one, one piece of that. Got it. Of those procedures in which we conduct our study. There, no, there, there are others. The way we if we're conducting a study where we're interested in comparing, say, two drugs, we conduct the study in a certain way where the people giving the drugs don't know which patients they're giving the active drug to. Maybe maybe we have a placebo. So we want to make sure that the way we conduct our study is done properly and according to 
methodological standards that are out there in the universe that you can read up on depending on the type of study that you're conducting uh, to make sure that the conclusions, the goal, like I said before, of statistics is to make sure that our results are as close to the, what we call the truth or what we'd see in a population as possible. I see. So this concept of trustworthiness of research findings, we see with the latest development in general in healthcare and in health overall, we have a very polarized group. Some people are put all their trust in science and assume that all these aspects that you mentioned are optimally addressed in those research studies. And other people are very skeptical about science as well, right? And they are like, hmm, I'm not sure. I need to, I need to explore further. I need to look at this. Not all science is created equal. So how do you see these concepts apply not only on an everyday life, but also in clinical practice? Why patients and clinicians should care about these concepts? It's a great question, Alonzo. So as a statistician, if somebody comes to me with a set of data that they've already collected, a research study they already conducted, and they're like, hey, Olivia, please, you know, I'd like you to analyze this data. I want you to tell me if, say, they, they were looking at Advil and Tylenol. Let's talk about Advil and Tylenol mm -hmm. for headaches. And say they're, they want to know if, if one is better than the other for reducing headaches. So they're asking me to analyze this data and, and tell them this information. Now, there's only 15 people in their study. What am I going to do with this information? Are these 15 people both representative of the population, aka was random error reduced? Can we make inferences about just these 15 people? On the other hand, how did they collect these 15 people? How did they get them to agree to be part of their study? Did they go to the first 15 people on their cell phone that popped up, their mother, their father, their brother, their sister? Or did they go into a clinic and watch the first 15 people that came by and, and ask them if they wanted to be in their study? Or did they do it in some sort of way where they called a randomization center, that's what we call it in research, and had this randomization center you know, choose a random set of 15 people based off of methods that they've developed for research? All those things I just talked about, how do they get those 15 people in their study are all about reducing bias. These are the questions here. that you have in your mind as you're going through that to that protocol, to that piece of research that, that you are helping to analyze the data, right? Exactly. Yeah. And these are all questions that I have for that researcher when I'm looking at the data. Did you do these things? Mm -hmm. Because our goal, like I said before, is to get a result from our study that is as close to the truth, meaning as close to what we would measure if we measured everybody in the population as possible. It's interesting to hear that in the way you describe it, you connect in a way these two issues that often are separated. So in, it's not only about conducting the study with enough people in the study so we can trust it more for all the reasons you described, but it's also about what were the methods utilized to conduct the study. And these two are intertwined and definitely something that both affected the trustworthiness at the end of the day of, of these findings for practice, for informing policies, or, or any other aspect that research can be helpful for. Absolutely. And kind of going back to your point before about consumers, everyday people that are, you know, some people trust research, like you said, blankly, they are scrolling on their um, Instagram, they're scrolling on whatever social media they're on, and they see a, the next best cream for like reducing wrinkles on their forehead. And Clinically and proven. I read that. I read that. Yes. And they're making assumptions that the people that conducted those studies both reduced bias, conducted the studies appropriately, and also did everything they could to reduce random error. Had enough people in those study where they can trust that the result that they got is what we call precise, meaning that we have a lot of certainty around that number that's being presented to us. We don't think that that number could be something completely different. I uh, see, like a skewed result. A skewed result. Yeah, yeah something that is actually, we expect that uh, this will improve in a specific amount, but in reality, when we use it, we observe something different. So... I see, I see. So 
for my last question today would be about what are the implications of these concepts? Why do we care about these concepts, for example, in clinical practice? I'm a patient. Let's imagine that I'm a patient. There is this new therapy or this, this interesting therapy that I'm considering in my conversation with my oral health professional. It seems that it's something we could do. How these different concepts play a role when informing that type of decision? Sure. So as a patient, you're trusting that your healthcare professional is giving you the best recommendations based off of the best science that they know exists or is out there in their field. And the healthcare professional patient relationship and trust is a big deal, I think. It is, it is. Now that healthcare professional is getting this information from either studies that they're reading on their own or reviews, what we call them reviews, of a bunch of different studies out there in the universe that kind of consolidate all that information for them so they can make informed decisions and give you a, a recommendation that's based off of science. So you as a patient should care about this because you, you hope that those studies that your healthcare professional is reviewing and, and making their recommendations to you off of have both been conducted appropriately, meaning they reduce the bias and systematic error as much as possible, and that those studies were large enough that we can be certain that the results from that study actually reflect the results that we would see if we had done this in the whole entire population. So it's about, as a patient, being able to trust what your healthcare professional is saying, and then that they can trust the science. Yeah. So it's kind of a chain, right? It's a chain of trust. Yeah, well, chain like, of trust. like most things, most things are like right. that. Yeah. Well, those are all the questions I have for today, Olivia. Thank you very much for joining us, and we hope we can have you in our podcast in another time. Thank you very much for having me today. This was a pleasure speaking with you. For more bite-sized conversations about statistics and healthcare, check out our other episodes in Apple Music and Spotify. Companion videos to our podcast can be found on our website or on our YouTube channel. Links to these can be found in the episode description. Find us on social media. We would love to hear from you. See you next time on Stats with Crayon.